the Undersecretary of Defense for Defense Policy in the U.S. Department of Defense is one of the biggest and hardest jobs in Washington. Colin Call served in that role for more than two years, from April 2021 to July 2023. He was the principal advisor to Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin for all matters related to security and defense policy, oversaw the writing of the 2022 National Defense Strategy, which focused on the pacing challenge posed by China, and he led the response to Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, among other international crises. He also led other major defense policy initiatives, like U.S. efforts to revitalize the NATO alliance. Call has had a long career in government and public service. During the Obama administration, he served as deputy assistant to the president and national security advisor to then Vice President Joe Biden. Before that, he served in the Pentagon as deputy assistant secretary of defense for the Middle East for nearly three years. Hello, and welcome to the Just Security Podcast. I'm your host, Paras Shah. Just Security's co-editor-in-chief, Tess Bridgman, recently sat down with Call, who is now a senior fellow at Stanford University's Center for International Security and Cooperation for an exit interview. Here is Tess's conversation with Colin Call. Thank you so much for doing this, Colin. It's wonderful to talk with you today. It's great to uh, be with you again. Let's get right to it with one that I think will be really informative for our listeners. As Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, you were a key player in shaping a myriad of defense policy issues, uh, including all the ones that capture the headlines. But we all know that those aren't always the ones that you have the luxury of spending your time on. Uh, I was hoping to start with those. What occupied the most of your time in your role? What kept you up at night? And what do you wish you had been able to spend more time on? Hmm. Uh those are all, those are great questions. Look, I think whenever you have these jobs, and essentially the you know for your listeners who don't know much about the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, the easiest way to think about it is you're kind of the national security advisor to the Secretary of Defense. So you run the Secretary's national security staff, about 800 civilians, military uh, contractors, and others, and then some bunch of agencies and departments that are agencies that report to you too. It all adds up to about 3,000 people that covers the entire waterfront of kind of national security policy for the Pentagon. So you're, you're responsible for everything. And like the, like those jobs elsewhere in the government, you end up inevitably drawn into whatever the crisis of the day is. So, you know, I, I took that position in the spring of 2021 uh, after the president had made the decision to uh, withdraw from Afghanistan. But of course, then you had the collapse of the government in Kabul in August and the, uh, you know, the frantic race to evacuate our embassy, uh, American citizens, and as many uh, vulnerable Afghans as we could, but against a, a, a you know a, a timeline. Uh, so that was obviously a, a hugely impactful uh, and consuming experience. Those kind of seventeen days uh, in August of twenty twenty one were among the most intense uh, in my life. I'm, I can imagine in any uh, you know anybody who does a job like this. Uh, and then we immediately pivoted from that to this kind of this onrushing train that was the Russian invasion of Ukraine, because we had a bunch of in intelligence suggesting that uh, uh, Putin was at least thinking about it and was putting the pieces in place to do it. And we started mobilizing the international diplomacy around that, you know, really only about 
six weeks after uh, the end of our involvement in Afghanistan. Um, so those two things pretty were pretty all consuming for kind of the first year of my of my job. You know, and then periodically things would would pop up that just weren't on your bingo card, like you know, a civil war erupts in Sudan and suddenly we have to evacuate our diplomats. Or uh, while the competition was China with China, it was front and center uh, for our foreign policy. And certainly at the Pentagon, none of us had, you know, high altitude balloon uh, uh, on our list of things we thought we would have to deal with uh, too. So, you know, the, it's pretty easy to get uh, consumed day to day in whatever the crisis uh, is that's driving things. Um, the thing I'm proudest of is that we were able to kind of take a step back um, in the 2022 National Defense Strategy, which my office oversaw, to really make sure that we were strategically thinking about how to uh, effectively compete with uh, with China, um, basically because China is the only country in the world that kind of has the military, diplom- diplomatic, technological uh, and economic wherewithal to challenge the United States as the world's most influential country, and also increasingly the intention the, the intention to do that and displace uh, the United States uh, as the world's leading actor. And I think in ways that would be more compatible with their interests and the values of the Chinese Communist Party. And I think in ways that would be um, I think highly problematic from a from a U.S. national security uh, perspective. So. China was not a day-to-day crisis. I mean, I mentioned the high-altitude balloon. There was, of course, you know, uh, then Speaker Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, which created, uh, you know, a, a spin-up. But day-to-day, China actually wasn't the front-burner crisis. And so really having the discipline to craft a strategy around how we needed to get serious about the pacing challenge that China posed and kind of make sure that we were making the investments and doing the hard thinking about that. And I'm actually quite proud that we managed to do that even as we were managing all these other things. So I was going to ask you about China a little bit later, but let's let's talk about that now since yeah. you've uh, brought up the the national defense strategy and the pacing challenge. And uh, I think many of our listeners will have heard you speak very eloquently about these issues while you were serving in your most recent role. Um, so kind of stepping out now with the luxury of a little bit of hindsight, here's a question that you you may have thought about a lot, but maybe not had an opportunity to talk about as much. What are the areas of strategic cooperation that you see as possible or desirable? Uh, you know, you've talked about building guardrails and the problem of the other side not wanting to answer the phone. Obviously, the rhetoric, I think, on both sides probably doesn't help. Um, if we could get past that, if we were in a moment of dialogue, what would be the areas of strategic cooperation that you think should be prioritized? Look, I think, you know, the competition between the United States and China is not like the Cold War competition. China is not the Soviet Union, and our economies and societies are much more intertwined than was the case uh, during the Cold War. And the world is more globalized, and our fates as human beings are more intertwined. So um, for that reason, there are a whole host of global challenges that... uh, you know, both the United States and China need to address, and it's in their interest to do that. And, and you know, obviously climate change is the one that pops uh, to mind for most people, but it's not the only one. Global public health, uh, uh, including pandemics, obviously COVID-19 originated uh, from China and the inability of the United States and China to um, work together to help 
address that challenge, um, you know, made the global response to COVID less, less effective. Uh, there are huge problems uh, associated with or huge uh, risks associated with emerging technologies like artificial intelligence, uh, of which the United States and, and China are the two leading actors. Uh, and so as you kind of think about international norms, rules, standards, governing emerging technologies that will reshape uh, all of our lives, um, you would think the United States and China have an interest in, in focusing uh, on that. And then, of course, as China goes through this process of quadrupling or maybe even quintupling its nuclear arsenal and meanwhile being quite assertive in domains like cyber and space and other things, the strategic stability implications of the U.S.-China relationship are, are pretty profound. And so across all those areas, I would say it would be a good thing if the United States and China could at least create some framework uh, to have, um, you know, if not kind of in-depth cooperation, at least uh, to be able to be moving the world in broadly uh, a direction that is, you know, serves both countries' interests and, and serves the broader interests of, of humanity. I think the big debate, <clears throat> less, I, I don't really think in the administration, actually, but I think the big debate in the world is, can you compete and cooperate with China at the same time? And the, you know, the administration, uh, uh, this administration believes that uh, you can. I think the previous administration believed basically you couldn't Therefore, you should compete and don't worry about cooperation. I think the Obama administration um, mostly emphasized cooperation. And to be frank, we didn't emphasize the, the competitive aspect enough, especially once Xi Jinping uh, ascended uh, in China and became clear that we needed to compete uh, more because he was competing with us. Um, so I think the Biden administration has tried to not be, a, you know, a, re, a, a Obama redux, but also not be Trump redux, but basically make an argument about whether you can compete and cooperate at the same time. And I think their argument is, look, we shouldn't have to accommodate things that are, that, that are, you know, that are dangerous to our interests or to international stability to, to induce China to do things that are in their interests. Like, we don't need to give them, uh, you know, to seed uh, their view on certain issues, whether it be, uh, you know, human rights in Xinjiang or Tibet uh, or their treatment of Hong Kong or the challenge, you know, the threat that they pose to the island of Taiwan, that we shouldn't have to cede that position to Beijing to get them to cooperate on things like public health or climate change, because it should be in their interest to do those things. Um, and so uh, this notion that we have to trade our interests away to get them to cooperate on things that should be in their interest doesn't make any sense. But what we can say is, even as we're competing with them, we will be open to dialogue and cooperation on these other issues. And I think that that's what the administration has tried, uh, has, has tried to do. Um, it's, been, it's been difficult, uh, though. And, um, you know, there aren't a lot of channels of dialogue and communication. I think the administration is trying to, uh, is trying to rectify that. The other, the, the other position, I think, where competition and cooperation um, meet is that most cooperation actually, as you know, uh, Tess, is the result of bargaining. It doesn't just happen out of thin air. It's actually a negotiation. It's it, And I think that um, what the Biden administration is doing is testing the hypothesis that we will be more effective ultimately in bargaining and negotiating with China if we bring uh, as much of the other advanced uh, economies and liberal democracies along with us. Uh, and so all the investments that have been made in our alliances and partnerships especially with uh, other uh, uh, 
advanced liberal democracies are seen as a way of generating leverage vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, bargaining with, with Beijing. So we'll see. I mean, I, I hopefully, I think the engagement that the administration is, is involved in now, um, more contacts, more channels of communication, that's good. I think, they're, I think they're, ho they're hopeful they can set up a meeting between Xi Jinping and the president in San Francisco in November. Um, uh, hopefully that happens because uh, there's, there's a lot to talk about. That's incredibly um, not only thoughtful, but hopeful. <laughs> I'd, I'd like to think uh, that there is a potential path for some forms of strategic cooperation. I, I think you're right. We hear about climate a lot, public health, uh, strategic stability. It was interesting to me that you also mentioned technology, AI, the emerging technologies that don't have regulatory frameworks built around them yet, uh, and obviously are, are the subject of really global concern as well as global promise. Uh, but it occurs to me that with respect to some of those technologies, in particular with the way that our respective governments and societies are structured, there may not be commonality. Yeah, it's yeah. A, it, there may not be, um, in large part because uh, more, in, in many ways, more than any of those other issues, um, the nature of, of uh, our government's institutions, values at home um, matter very much for how we address it abroad. So uh, in China's case, of course, you know, the major, the, the, the major concern that a lot of uh, democracies have is that, you know, China is not only trying to demand, to dominate the commanding heights of technology and the infrastructure that undergirds that technology for economic benefit. They are doing that. Um, um, but also because um, they want to make the highly interdependent world and the technology that underpins it safe for the CCP. Uh, and the concern that the concern there is that um, the enormous surveillance apparatus that they have created uh, in China, um, uh, the investments they've made in uh, uh, facial recognition, um, in using uh, AI and machine learning algorithms for social uh, control, uh, the censorship they've imposed through the Great Firewall on the internet, um, that, that they have built a extraordinarily sophisticated model of digital authoritarianism at home. And that I think the concern is that they will externalize that model. Uh, and so the more that they control 5G infrastructure, the more they uh, con uh, you know, control undersea cables, the more they control the, tr the transfer of data in outer space, um, and the more that they uh, uh, have access to the to uh, to data, and can shape the norms and standards around these technologies, they will do it in favor of a more authoritarian mindset. The United States has a different view. Um, you know, we have our own debates within the kind of the democratic world. I don't mean that in terms of Democratic Party. I mean in terms of democracies. You know, the Americans, the the Brits. Uh, uh, other Europeans have different views on kind of data privacy and these other issues. So there's a lot of, there's a lot to be hashed out, but I think there's where there's a shared concern in, increasingly. So is that we don't want a world in which China sets the rules on these technologies. All of that said, AI in particular, um, especially, uh, uh, generative AI is one of these technologies that, that, will shape our lives in ways that will be beyond, beyond the control of either the United States or China. And therefore, both countries have should have some interest in putting 
uh, uh, guardrails around the technology because neither one of us will be uh, in control of that of that outcome. So I don't think a purely competitive frame deals with all of the uh, downside risks. That's a helpful framing of, of where we might have a path forward, even on that incredibly contentious issue. In the interest of time, let's pivot first to something uh, very close to home, which is DOD as an institution. So you've spent a lot of time in the Pentagon, uh, a very senior role, of course. Uh, you've also had the vantage point of the White House uh, with your past experience. So you're intimately acquainted with what makes the institution tick, also perhaps its flaws. What do you think are some of the priorities that should be established or reforms that could be undertaken to make DOD the best version of itself? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a hard question um, because, you know, as you know, Tess, DOD is not one bureaucracy. It's like six or seven of the largest bureaucracies uh, in the U.S. government. Um, and even though I've now spent, uh, you know, several years in three different um, tours of duty at the Pentagon, I, I wouldn't pretend to understand every nook and cranny uh, of it. I do think, though, if we're going to be successful as a country in rising to the challenge that China poses, that Russia poses, that others, um, you know, we have to do we have to do uh, things differently at the DOD. And I think there's widespread recognition of that now, whether it can be actually implemented or not is, is to be uh, told. I mean, first, um, there has to be, uh, a, you know, a much uh, more sustained commitment to creating a different uh, innovation uh, environment. I think that is widely recognized among senior leadership uh, at the department, um, in large part because so much of the innovation is now happening outside of government-sponsored uh, labs or or R and D um, or you know military investments, but is happening in the commercial sector. Uh, and so, to how to bring those in innovations in seamlessly and efficiently, how to identify technologies uh, that actually don't have commercial applications but are being developed outside of the government, and how do you bring them into government without having a two-year budget cycle where these things you know wither on the vine during this uh, this period that some people call the Valley of Death. Um, so, you know, I'm really excited. Uh, Doug Beck, who's the new head of the Defense Innovation Unit out here uh, in California, um, you know coming from a senior position at Apple, uh, has a lot of great ideas. I think there's a lot of energy in the system around how to deepen uh, cooperation with the commercial sector. I think the other uh, uh, two things I would emphasize is um, related, associated with the defense industrial base. Um, you know, I think the, the war in Ukraine has reminded us of what it requires to actually sustain a high intensity war fight, even when we're not directly involved, uh, but just supporting a partner involved. And I think it, it, it highlighted an underinvestment in the United States and other countries in, uh, in our defense industrial base um, and in particular types of capabilities, especially munitions. Um, and so we've got to fix that uh, problem. And again, the administration is completely uh, witty, you know, aware of that and is making major investments, but um, they need to continue doing that. They need to get support from the Hill to do it. The third is, I think that, and this is related because it's also associated with the defense industrial base, is I think we need to increasingly think of the defense industrial base as a collective good of the free world. That is, we tend to think of it in terms of, or understand it about our companies, our national uh, companies and, and what we sell overseas. And, you know, we compete with Israeli companies and French companies and British companies. I mean, we're all allies uh, and, and friends, but we, we compete. 
Um, and we will continue to do so. But I think we can't afford to have all of our national defense industries go off in different directions. And I think that, you know, our closest democratic allies and partners, um, we need to find ways to increasingly cooperate with them. So we should be building a ton of ships in the United States. I'm for building as many as we can here, but we should also take advantage of the, of considerable, considerable capacity to do things like that in places like Japan or South Korea. Um, there's a lot of opportunity to do things with India, uh, in the defense uh, technology uh, space. And so I think, um, uh, and with with our European partners, so and and you know, I think we're exploring this through mechanisms like our arrangements with India, like things like AUKUS with the UK and Australia. But I think we need to do more of that, of thinking about how we can rise, we can we can elevate the defense industrial base across the democratic world in a way that's fitter for purpose um, in competing with China and Russia and others. So. While we have you, I can't help but ask this one question that I think for uh, the the lawyers in our audience um, will be close to their hearts. So for, for those who are not lawyers, uh, it's helpful to, to lay uh, as a, a baseline that uh, executive branch lawyering isn't usually litigating, although there are plenty of executive branch lawyers that do that, that walk into court and stand up and make arguments on behalf of the United States. Uh, but for lawyers that serve in departments and agencies that lawyer the policy process and and provide counsel to policymakers like you, what makes a good lawyer, in your view, after all of these tours of duty? And what are the most helpful things that a lawyer can do to make the policy process run smoothly? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I had the benefit um, in in my latest tour at the Pentagon of working with uh, Caroline Crass, who is the OGC at, at the Pentagon, and she had had a similar role at CIA uh, uh, in the previous Democratic administration. And you know, she was she was extraordinary and, and a great and a great partner. And I think that one of the ways in which um, you know she was particularly effective is that she saw her job as being a problem solver. Um, that yes, I mean, representing the, the department in litigation and all, all sorts of other things or dealing with legal disputes that, that surface across the department, but also trying to figure out how um, to, uh, you know, credibly interpret the law in a way that was consistent with and furthered and enabled policy. And I think sometimes, um, you know, fairly or unfairly, I think sometimes lawyers in the executive branch um, are seen as the folks who tell you you can't do the things you want to do. And, um, uh, you know, lawyers always have to follow the law. But I think coming into these jobs is how do I partner with people in policy to be problem solvers as opposed to just telling them they can't do the things um, and to be creative about um, uh, how the law can be interpreted or policy can be adjusted consistent with the law to enable um, things that are in the national interest. And so being a, being a partner with the policy process, I think is, I mean, maybe that seems, sounds basic, but I'm not sure that um, every lawyer I've, I've encountered, uh, you know, saw their role that way. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, we maybe have time for one parting thought. Uh, anything that you take with you from your most recent tour uh, that you'd like to see carried on uh, or that you you hope um, remains a, a priority that maybe is flying under the radar, maybe maybe something folks aren't focused enough on, at least as far as the headlines are concerned? Yeah, I, I, look, it's less an issue. And I would actually, I would just say something that, you know, we, you and I were both uh, in the Obama administration until the very last day. 
And, you know, I was back in government only four years later. And I like to think I was paying attention in the four years in between. But what I did not fully appreciate, I mean, I understood it kind of intellectually, but what I didn't feel um, was how much harder the world, how much harder the world is. Um, It's a much more competitive place. The United States remains the world's most influential actor, but um, it's more important than others that we, more important than ever that we bring others alongside us. Um, That the challenges that we often were confronting, even in in, in the Obama administration, still largely focused on the Middle East and terrorism issues. And I think even though, you know, Russia was becoming assertive, had, you know, obviously they annexed Crimea, they started the separatist movement in the Donbass and Ukraine, they intervened in Syria. I don't think we had fully come around to the, to understanding the challenge that they posed. Um, you know, Xi Jinping became much more assertive in the South China Sea, East China Sea, vis-a-vis Hong Kong, Taiwan. I think the writing was on the wall, but it, you didn't feel it in quite the same way. Um, we certainly felt it. Uh, at the beginning of this administration. And then you layer on other things uh, that, you know, I mean, obviously I'm a Democrat. I'm, I was a political appointee in a couple of democratic administrations. So I'm not, I'm, I'm not objective, but the Trump years were really, really hard on us leadership in the world because we, the United States managed to alienate many of the countries that we most need to be by our side, to do everything. Uh, and so our alliances were pretty battered. Uh, and then, of course, uh, you know, COVID happened, uh, and that accelerated a lot of problems around the globe. It also, frankly, created an enormous wear and tear on our bureaucracies. So I say that I say all of that because the world just felt harder. Everything was harder, and the stakes seemed larger. Um, and um, my response to that, or you know, I, I think maybe what I would leave your listeners with is to say that's why we need people to serve because the world is not getting any easier. It's getting harder and the problems are getting tougher and we need the best and the brightest in our society to still be willing to serve. Um, Because uh, if we don't solve these problems, the future for your children, my children uh, could be pretty bleak. Um, So if you're listening to this, um, uh, I hope that a, a number of you step up and serve. Thank you, Colin. Very well said. Appreciate your time today. Great to be with you. This episode was co-hosted by me, Parash Shah, and Tess Bridgman. It was edited and produced by Tiffany Chang, Michelle Eigenheer, and Clara Apt. Our theme song is The Parade by Hey Pluto. Special thanks to Call and Call. You can read Just Security's coverage of the many issues discussed in this episode on our website. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. 